Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Last week I, I started a one-off series, and uh, I, I did a one-off last week on uh, freedom, but I'm trying to capture, we're trying to capture this kind of God moment we're in right now with the Conquer series going on for the guys, and I and, uh, and so out of last week, I, I want to do another message this week, and maybe I'll do another one again next week. I don't know how long I'll go. But uh, I just keep praying, and I'm like, Lord, I just, I just want to do what you're saying. I can have all my human plans, and I've got other series that I want to do yet and different things that, that I want to get to. But in the end, I just want to do what God's doing. And if, I, if we can follow along with what he's doing, that's going to be great. So kind of what I have in my mind right now, and I don't know if I'll go through all of them, but I have a picture in my mind of kind of a stool with four or five legs. I can't determine yet how many legs it has. Um, but it's, it's the stool of freedom. And, uh, and we looked at two important legs of that stool uh, last week. We looked at, first of all, hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness. That hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. It's a promise. And it's also a gateway. There's a, there's a select group of people who will be set free. It's not everyone. There's a select group of people that will be set free, and it is the group of people that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, obviously, there's more to being set free than just a hunger and thirst for righteousness, but why is hunger and thirst for righteousness the gateway through which people must go if they want to be set free? And the reason is because freedom, I think sometimes we have this idea that freedom is a thing that I can just get. Like one day I could be praying for it, and then suddenly freedom is like a, a, a Christmas present in a box. It's all wrapped up, and it just falls into my lap, and now I have freedom. Just a moment ago I didn't have freedom, and now suddenly I have freedom. And actually that's not how freedom works. As we looked at last week, freedom is a journey, and it's a long, hard journey of you having everything about you radically changed, the way you think and the right way you live to make Jesus the number one center of your life. And that can be a very difficult process. It can, it's a narrow path. It's a steep path. It's a rocky path. And the only people who are willing to follow that path to the very end, as we saw last week, are those who actually hunger and thirst for it. So there's lots of Christians that will never be set free, and they can know all the same stuff. They can sit under the same preaching. They can take the same conquer course. They can do all kinds of stuff. And it's not just sexual bondage. It's for women too. It's, there's lots of Christians that will never be set free of their junk. And, the, and the, the first reason is because they don't hunger and thirst. They're not willing to do whatever it takes to do what God says you got to do in order to be set free. So hunger and thirst for righteousness is the gateway uh, to freedom. And it's certainly one leg of, of the stool. Then we looked at a second leg of the stool last week, and, that, and I talked about the number one thing that you and I need with God. The number one thing that you and I need with God in order to be set free is loving, grace-filled relationships, okay? Each of us needs, and this is in the Bible, okay? But it's also lots of science behind it as well, that you and I, each one of us, so women need, you know, two or three or four or five uh, women, and guys need, you know, two or three or four or five brothers, whatever it is, a handful of people where you have a relationship, and it's not just, I mean, everybody, you know, most people have a lot of friends, and lots of people in the church have friends, but what we're talking about here is not just friends, people that you watch football with, or people that you go shopping with, or people that you hang out with and Facebook with and all that sort of stuff. We're talking about is a handful of people who love Jesus, and you and them, there's no secrets. There's no secrets. There's no masks. You have people in your life. You have a handful of people in your life that you are absolutely, utterly uh, vulnerable with, uh, with God, and they hold you accountable, and that's absolutely necessary. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We looked at that whole verse last week. Now, the thing is, in our culture, again, we, we're good at having lots of friends, lots of connections, people we know, people we laugh with, people we watch stuff with. We're good at having lots of friends. We're not so good at having friends like that where there's absolutely no secrets and there's, there's absolute vulnerability. And one of the things is, for a lot of guys in particular, this actually scares us. And that's why, again, if you want to have freedom, you've got to go back to number one, which is you actually have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your hunger and thirst for righteousness has to be bigger than your fear of vulnerability. Okay? Today, I want to look at a third leg on this stool. And again, there's more, and I don't know how many more I'm going to actually get into 
But today I want to look at a third uh, foundation, an absolutely essential leg on the stool of freedom. But let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, I know that here today, sitting here this morning, we all need you. We all need your power. We all need a touch from you. We all need to hear from you. But some of us need to hear from you more. Some of us need a touch from you more. And Lord Jesus, I'm praying that everyone who had enough of a hunger and a thirst for you to come to church this morning, Lord Jesus, those ones that are here today, and maybe their need for you has nothing to do with anything that's going to be in the message. Father, I pray that you would touch them powerfully by your spirit anyway. That each one of us would leave here this morning with hope and with faith. A little touch from you, Jesus, and from your Holy Spirit that would draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, two weeks ago, I want to do something. I want to do a little bit of review. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ray preached an amazing message, the last message in that amazing series on uh, marriage and sexuality, and he spoke this amazing message on forgiveness. And while he was in that message, there was a point he made about Luke 17. And uh, while he was preaching the message, that point just so impacted me. It was from a passage that I've, it's been one of my favorites in the Gospels for a number of years already. And while he was preaching it, I just, I just knew. Sometimes I just have this uh, kind of, this, this experience of just, I'm sitting in a message and a point comes up and I just know God's saying, we've got to go back to that one. We've got to review that one, okay? And so I'm going to spend the first few moments of this message reviewing Luke 17 and a point Pastor A made two weeks ago. And some of you might be like, oh, like, we've got to review that. We were just there two weeks ago. Here's what I know about 99% of you. You can't remember what you had for supper two days ago. And I bet you, you don't remember much of the message from two weeks ago. And this point was just so good. We've got to go back there. We're going to jump off of it because Pastor Ray was applying it specifically to forgiveness. But I'm going to apply it much broader because the principle applies much broader. And so we go back to Luke chapter 17, verse 3. And Jesus says this, pay attention to yourselves. Okay, exclamation mark. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, first of all, uh, seven times, that's a high standard, okay? Seven times in one day, and really, again, he's not just saying you have to limit it to seven times, it just means limitless, but if a person sins against you seven times in one day, you're supposed to forgive them seven times. Now, I don't know how saintly you are here this morning, okay? Some of you might be very saintly, but even the most saintly among you here this morning, that is very difficult, okay? Uh, to forgive someone seven times in a day and they keep saying sorry and you keep forgiving them, that's really hard. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you might even be thinking, well, this isn't even realistic. Like, uh, who, you know, who would ever offend you seven times in one day? Those of you who are thinking that are probably not married, right, first of all? Because <laughs> those of you who are married, you know, this is actually realistic. And those of you with kids, this is like a weekly occurrence for sure, Okay. And so Jesus says, if someone offends you seven times in a day, seven times you're forgiven, okay? So that is a very difficult task, okay? Uh, Pretty close to impossible. And the disciples agreed that that's hard. And so their response is the next verse, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Lord Jesus, if you want us to do that, like that is such a high standard. That is such a crazy high standard that if you want me to, if you want us to live at that level, then you're going to have to come through and you're going to have to change something in us. Now, on the surface, that seems like a pretty good request, okay? It seems spiritual. Uh, um, You want me to do that, Lord? That's a very difficult request. Then you're going to have to empower me. You're going to have to increase my faith, okay? And, but now Jesus is going to give a response. It's a two-part response. And again, Pastor Ray talked about this two weeks ago. It's really amazing. It's going to give us a launching pad into the rest of the message. But in this response... Jesus gives one of, it's one of my favorite Jesus answers in the Gospels. It is so unapologetic, it is so sovereign, and it is so not 2016 Canadian politically correct. Because Jesus is just not nice. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. He, I can see the twinkle in his eye when he gives this answer to the disciples. He is absolutely full of love, but he just absolutely does not care about being nice. 
And so the disciples, he gives the disciples this charge seven times in a day, you forgive seven times. The disciples go, you want us to do that? You better increase our faith. And Jesus says, oh yeah? And he says this. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, okay, has nothing to do with the size of your faith. It could be the smallest kind of faith. If you had faith even that small, if you had faith the size of like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you, okay? And so as Pastor Ray talked about two weeks ago, it has nothing to do with the size of your faith. It has to do with the kind of faith. If you have the right kind of faith, you don't need lots of faith. You just need the smallest, teensiest amount of the right kind of faith. And if you have the right kind of faith, God's power will flow into your life and you will be able to do anything, including forgive a person seven times in a day. Okay? And then he moves on now, and this is the part that I just absolutely love about Jesus. He now moves on to describe for us what right kind of faith looks like. And so he says this in verse 7, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Okay? So let's just condense this whole conversation. Jesus gives them a pretty much impossible command. You must forgive seven times. Even if it's in the same day, you will forgive seven times in the same day. The disciples say, if you want us to live at that kind of an impossible level, you're going to have to increase our faith. And then Jesus says, you don't need no more faith. You just need to obey. You don't need more faith. You just need to obey. Now, this passage is specifically speaking about forgiveness. But actually, this principle applies right across the board. See, Jesus' demands in our life, lives are this impossible in every, in every area, not just in the area of forgiveness. I mean, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse uh, 21 to 26, Jesus is talking about anger. He says, you think murder is bad? If one of you loses your temper on someone and calls them a fool, that's like, that's like murder. And everybody goes, oh. okay. And then right after that, in verses 27 to 30, he says, you think adultery is bad? If you even lust after a woman in your thought life, inside, in your, in your mind, that's like adultery. And you go, oh, like the standard is so high. And so many Christians find themselves in this place of almost being, I actually talk and pray with people, and sometimes it's almost like, it's like this hopelessness, like why even try? Or sometimes it's like anger, like, like if you want me to live at that level, Jesus, then you better increase my faith. And, and that is the wrong kind of faith. Jesus says, you don't need more faith. What you just need to do is obey, because obedience that kind of faith that just steps forward and obeys, all you need is this much. It's just the tiniest little bit, and you'll be able to uproot anything in your life. You'll be able to do anything. You'll even be able to follow my commands. Now, some of you might be sitting there, and you might be saying, are you saying that we can just obey Jesus on our own power? I mean, didn't you just say last week, and you went through this whole thing in Romans 7, and it's like you can't overcome sin by your willpower alone, and it's absolutely true. But now you turn around and you show us this passage from Jesus and Jesus says you don't need more faith, you just need to obey. So which is it? Are we, do we need God's power to obey or can we do it on our own? And the answer is, it's both. It has to do with order. The kind of faith that brings God's power into your life is the kind of faith that doesn't wait for a feeling. Lord, I'll do that when you give me a feeling. When you change my heart, that's when I'll start to obey. And God says, my power does not flow in response to that. You absolutely need God's power in order to obey his commands. But the way you get that power is first by starting even before you have the power. And so the kind of faith that moves mountains and that uproots mulberry trees and that sees uh, strongholds come down in your life is the kind of faith that says, yes, sir, that's what you want me to do, sir, and you just start taking a step. You don't even have the power to do it yet, but you're committed. Absolutely, I'll do it if it kills me. And you take a step forward, and as you take a step forward, God's power flows into your life. God's power flows into your life. And this is another one of the big reasons. Again, I don't want to oversimplify things. There's always many reasons, and human beings are complex. But this is a big reason why some Christians get free and some don't. 
You can be in the same church under the same preaching. You can be in the same conquer course. You can be in the same cell. But we all know, I know testimonies in this church, incredible testimonies of people who have been in the worst sorts of bondage, the worst sorts of addiction. They've had the worst sorts of upbringing. They've got everything stacked against them, and you would think they'll never get out of that. And then they have these amazing testimonies of being set free. And then in the same church, in the same cell group, in the same whatever, you find other people who've been Christians for years, and they can never get set free. Why is it? Again, there's many reasons. I don't want to oversimplify it, and there's more than one leg to this, this stool of freedom. But, but one of the big reasons is because some Christians have this kind of faith, and all you need then is this much, and stuff begins to happen. Some Christians have this hunger and thirst in them, and it's just like they read the Word, they hear a message, and it's like, Lord, I'll die. I'll give anything up. I'm going to make you first, and I have no power to do this, but you said to do it, so yes, sir. And they just start to walk, and over time, God's power flows into their life and radically changes them. And then there's other Christians that they just don't have that. So they sit in the same messages and they sit in the same courses and they sit in the same cells and they desire freedom. There is a desire in them for freedom. But whether it be fear or shame or laziness or whatever, they just kind of float through life. And then they wonder, 20 years, 30 years, I don't have freedom. And it's like there's this deadness in their souls. There's no power. And one of the reasons is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not wrong in this passage when he says, all you need is this much faith and anything can move in your life. There is no stronghold too strong for Jesus. But you must have the kind of faith that steps forward and obeys. And so what I want to do now is I want to jump in the Old Testament because, well, and we can look New Testament, Old Testament. The Bible is full. It's absolutely full to overbrimming with stories that illustrate this truth. In fact, I had to choose from a whole bunch, and so I'm going to just pick one. We're going to look at the story of Joshua and the Israelites coming out of the wilderness and moving into the promised land. And in this story, we're going to see this truth about obedience and then power. Obedience and then power is right throughout this entire story. And we're going to look at different stages of obedience because also there's more to obedience than just, you know, you take this verse and then you think, if I, there's just this, I got to look for that one obedience, that one step of obedience, and if I just take that step of obedience, I'm going to be radically set free in every area of my life. And that's not how it works. Again, freedom is a journey and there's going to be many steps of obedience uh, along the way. And so let's go to Joshua and the Israelites uh, entering the promised land. Just give me a second here. And so we start with the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, they've been in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. And we could just take a time out right there and just talk about why are they in the wilderness. And it exactly has to do with what? Disobedience. We could do a whole message right there just on the disobedience. And we could do a whole series of messages on the disobedience one. That's throughout the scriptures as well. The whole reason they're in the wilderness in the first place is because of disobedience. And again, I don't want to oversimplify things. There are different reasons why God leads his people through wildernesses, and sometimes he'll lead you through a wilderness and it has nothing to do with you being disobedient or you being mad, bad or, or you have, making some kind of a mistake. It's true. But many times there are Christians who are in wildernesses in their lives and it has to do with disobedience. And so I pray with people and they've got big decisions they, they have to make or they've got big things going on in their life and they don't know why isn't God speaking to me? Why isn't God speaking to me? And they're asking and sometimes the reason is because there's, there's a prompting that the Spirit has had on them for a year or six months or a month or whatever and they've been ignoring that prompting and they've been disobeying and disregarding that prompting and now they come to God and they're like, Lord, I need, you. I need an answer. This is really desperate and they're calling out to God and they can't hear and the reason they can't hear is because they're in a wilderness because of disobedience. And you say, well... That was just that little thing six months ago. It, was, it didn't even have anything to do with this. It, had, it has everything to do with it. See, God doesn't compartmentalize. He wants your whole being submitted to him. And you want to move into the promised land, and you think this little issue over here that you think is little, you think, you know what, I'm going to ignore the prompting there, but I need God to come through for me over here. And God says, no, 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 no. Freedom is you being 100% submitted to me. And so you might not think this little thing that the Spirit was prompting you in has anything to do with what it is over here that you're struggling with. And Jesus says it has everything to do with everything. 
Obedience is everything. And the kind of faith that moves mountains is the kind of faith that can be this big. It can be that small, that teeny. But it's obedient faith. And so we find Joshua and the Israelites now, 40 40 years they've been in the wilderness because of disobedience, and now finally it's time uh, to cross over. And so they're standing on this, the wrong side of the Jordan River. And so they're in the wilderness. On the far side is this promised land. It's a tiny piece of land, but it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's also a land filled with many enemies. And now it's time for them to move into it, but first they have to cross the Jordan River. And, and, and so it's springtime, and so this is flood time. And so the Jordan River, uh, you know, much of my life as a kid and stuff hearing this story, I always imagined the river as sort of this calm, placid, you know, it's sunny outside, and there's this nice river maybe from me to the front row there. And uh, that is not... Uh, what the Jordan River was like in spring. It had long overflowed its banks. And depending on which experts you read up on, it could have been anywhere from half a mile to a mile wide in places, okay? It's not a calm little river that they just need to wade across. It is, it's an uncrossable river. I mean, you need to, what you need to imagine more is like the Red River in spring, except even wider, but you know how muddy it is, and it's churning, and it's moving, and you wouldn't be able to just walk across it. That was the Jordan River that was facing the, the, the people of Israel, and there's no bridges across it, and they don't have bridge-building capabilities or technology or anything, okay? And so this is the river that's in between them and moving into the Promised Land. And so we come to God's instructions to Joshua and the people of Israel. So starting in chapter 3 of Joshua, verse 12, God says this, Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So the first thing I want you to notice is here's Jesus' New Testament truth at work in the Old Testament, okay? God, when are you going to part the waters, okay? Do you want us to stand at the edge of the river, and then you'll part the waters, and then we'll walk across? And God says, no, no. Actually, what I want you to do is I want you to take your priests, and I want them carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most sacred, most valuable object in all of Israel, okay? It's all plated in gold. It's got the stone tablets in there, the Ten Commandments. It's got a bunch of stuff in there. It's a very valuable, sacred object, and it's very heavy as well. I want the priests to carry that, plus your 12 most important leaders, the the leaders of each of the tribes of Israel, and I want them to walk. Now, think again. Don't think of a calm, clear water where you can see the bottom. I want you to think of the Red River. It's muddy. It's murky. It's springtime. It's flowing very fast. You can't tell where is there a sudden drop-off. You can't see the ground. You can't tell where it's soft. Um, And and God says, I don't want you to stand at the side. If you stand at the side, this river's not going to part. What's going to happen is you guys, your 12 most important leaders and the most valuable sacred object in all of Israel, you are going to walk into that river. And as you walk into the river, that's when it's going to part. Can you just hear Jesus? You don't need more faith. You just need to obey. And in response to obedience, the power of God is going is to move and we're going to part the waters, but it's only going to be parted as you move forward in obedience. Now, do they have the, the power or the strength to part those waters? No. But even without having that power and strength, he asked them to go into the waters. Okay? Now, of course, the question, if, I, I'm always asking questions like this when I'm reading Bible stories. Uh, my first question is, how deep did they have to go in, right? I mean, because those are very practical considerations. How deep did they have to go in, right? Now, as we're going to see in a couple of verses, I feel like in this story, they didn't have to go in very deep, okay? So I don't know how, how deep they made it in there. And, and remember, they're, kind of, they're all in a row. So the guys on the front carrying that Ark of the Covenant, they're going to go in the deepest. But I kind of feel like the way the story is told, they don't go in super deep in this case. But there's something I wanted to say here anyway, and that is this. Every circumstance is different. Every situation is different. And I will tell you this. However deep these guys had to go in before the waters parted, there will be times in your life and in my life when God will make you go in neck deep before he parts it. And you say, what? What kind of a message is this? Like, you're not giving me any hope whatsoever. And why would God ever make me go neck deep in the Red River before he parts it? Okay? Now, fortunately, God isn't me. If I was God, it would probably be partially because of my sixth sense of humor, okay? But that's not God's motivation. I can tell you that with assurance. One of the reasons God will sometimes make us go in neck deep before he parts the river is because of this. He, there are certain things he will not let us carry from the wilderness into the promised land. 
There are certain things that you're in the, in the wilderness and you want to move into the promised land. What's the promised land for us? The promised land is a place where you can be fruitful for God. You can bear the fruit of the Spirit and you can walk with Him. It's a wonderful place. It's a place where God uses you and where you have a relationship with Him and you can have the fruit of the Spirit. You can't move from a spiritual wilderness into the promised land and hold on to everything you're holding on to. And so sometimes what God will do is He will take you in neck deep Till you're just about to get swept away. And here's what happens when you're in a fast-moving, overflowing river and you're in neck deep. You can't hold into anything, onto anything or you'll be swept away. So God will take you into that river and he'll say, you got to go a little deeper, you got to go a little deeper. And you're going, God, I'm obeying you and I'd still the waters aren't parting and you're getting deeper and you're getting deeper. And God says, they're not going to part until you let go of your need for control. So you let go of those plans you have for your life that aren't his plans. Those are some of the hardest things to let go of. So you let go of your need for people to like you. And so you let go of your need to be successful. And so you let go of your need to project an image of yourself that you are strong and have it all together. Until you let go of your need for a particular job or standard of living or house or whatever it is, God will take you in when you're going into the promised land. He will sometimes make you go in neck deep in your obedience before he parts it because there are certain things you cannot hold on to in the promised land. And so in his love, he'll take you in there, but you've got to obey first and you've got to obey as long as it takes, and then his power flows. And so we see what happens in verse 15. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So there's the whole thing about it flooding. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing uh, down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite of Jericho. And so they make it across, okay? So the first lesson we learn here at the river is you walk first, you step into the river first, then the power of God flows. You don't wait for God to change your feelings. You don't wait for God to change your circumstances and then obey. The kind of faith that moves mountains walks first. And so now Joshua and the Israelites get to the other side of the river, and you would think, okay, the story's over, right? Like, you take that one step of obedience, now you're across. I can just see Joshua and the Israelites strutting all over on the other side of the bank, like, show me another body of water. Like, I'll walk into it, right? Show me a lake. Show me another, you know, raging river, and we'll walk into it. And uh, God says, okay, well, you passed that test, but you haven't taken a single stronghold yet. And sometimes we'll get to this place too. We, we take a step of obedience and we walk into that river and God parts it and then it's kind of like you feel really good like, I got it now. Like, give me another one of those tests. And, and God's like, I don't need to give you another one of those tests. You pass that one, I'm gonna give you a different one. And so the next step of obedience comes right out of left field. It's never what you expect and suddenly you find yourself wrestling again with faith. And do I have obedient faith? And so we find this with Joshua and the Israelites too. They're just, you know, kind of dusting themselves off. That was pretty neat, crossing the river. And then we find Joshua 5, verse, starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So there's that sweet, we've got to cross, we're in, we're going to conquer now. And then verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Okay, now, time out for just a moment. Some of you are going to be distracted by this whole thing of being circumcised a second time. How is that even possible? Okay? <laughs> they were not circumcised a second time in the sense that these guys had been circumcised before. He's referring back to the first time was Moses when he circumcised the Israelites coming out of Egypt. But remember, they, they disobeyed and wandered in the... In the in the wilderness for 40 years, that whole generation died off. This generation hasn't been circumcised, okay? So it's not, I know it's not physically possible to circumcise a person a second time, okay? So for those of you who are going to be distracted by that. Um, but anyway, moving on, does this make a bit of sense, humanly speaking? Does this make any sense? I mean, God, if you wanted to circumcise them, why didn't you do it on the other side? Look, think about this, think about this, okay? This is strategic planning on God's part, okay? 
While they're on the other side in the wilderness, they've got a river between them, a raging river, an overflowing river between them and a hornet's nest of enemies that hate them and want to kill them. Okay? So what does God do? He takes them across the river, and once they're across the river and they no longer have the river for protection, he says to all the guys, uh, and now I want you all circumcised. Okay? And he doesn't even do it in shifts. It's not even like, uh, you know what, one half of you gets circumcised, and while they're rolling around on their tents in the fetal position for three to four days, literally this is what it's going to be, they're going to be on the floor of their tents almost completely immobilized. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible, okay? They're going to be in the tent, unable to move. So what we'll do, Joshua, is we'll do it in shifts. And while one half is in pain and can't do anything, the other half will stand guard. It's not even like he does that. He takes them across the river. And again, Joshua must be thinking like, your project manager, God, you need to fire him because the order is all wrong. We've got this messed up. We're now at our most vulnerable place. We've crossed the river. There's nothing between us and a whole bunch of people that really want to kill us. And the first thing God says is, okay, line up, guys, a couple hundred thousand of you, and all of you at one time are going to be circumcised. And for the next three to five days, they are going to be at their most helpless, vulnerable spot. And God does it on purpose. Now, there's an important, there is a really important principle here that I want us to get because some of us Christians have a wrong idea about obedience. We think that obedience always leads to immediate blessing. There's like, if I obey, I got this prompting in my spirit from God. If I obey it, it's a little bit risky, but if I obey it, I'm going to be in a stronger position when I'm done. I'm going to be in a more influential, I'm going to be in a more blessed position position. I'm going to be in a stronger position with regards to this, this stuff I'm going through. I'm going to be in a stronger position with regards to my enemies. And actually, that is not true. Sometimes when you obey God, he will intentionally put you in the weakest, most vulnerable position possible. Obedience does not always make us stronger. Look at this story right here in Joshua. Go across the river, and now when you have nothing to protect you, not, not because they made a mistake, not because they sinned, but simply because they did the right thing and obeyed God, they were now in a weaker, more vulnerable spot than they had ever been before. Sometimes, obedience will make you weak and vulnerable. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, first of all, because then God gets all the glory. He is really passionate about you and me not getting the glory for what he's doing. And so one of the reasons, he will intentionally, at some point in your life and probably at multiple points in your life, he will ask you to do stuff and not because you sinned and not because you made a mistake, but because you obeyed him, you will now be in a worse position, a weaker, more vulnerable position than you were before. And the first reason is because he wants to get the glory. And then the second reason is because he wants us to rely on him rather than on ourselves. Anyone who wants to be set free of their junk, listen carefully, anyone who wants to be set free from their junk and move into the promised land where you can be fruitful for the Lord, you are going to have tests of obedience where God moves you into positions of weakness and vulnerability. And so you'll have a prompting and you'll object to the Spirit and you'll say, but if I do what I sense the Spirit of God tugging me to do, I'll be at a disadvantage. And whatever this sticky situation is that you're in, I'll be, if I do what I sense the Spirit of God prompting me to do, I'll be at a disadvantage with my ex-wife or ex-husband. I'll be embarrassed. I'll be at a disadvantage in legal proceedings that are going on. I'll be at a disadvantage to my competitors. I'll be at the mercy of my enemies. I'll look like an idiot. Yes, and that's exactly what happened to the Israelites here too. Sometimes obedience is, from a human point of view, the stupidest thing you could possibly do. But here's the thing. This is how we win in God's army. I really pray that the Spirit will get this into our hearts. In God's army, we triumph through weakness and vulnerability, not through strength. Let me say that again. In God's army, we triumph through weakness and vulnerability, not through strength. Now, I just told you, it's kind of a neat point, and some of you might write that down and go, oh yeah, that's a good point, I've got to remember that. And here's the thing I know, apart from the Holy Spirit doing that work in our hearts, we can't get that. It goes against everything in us. Everything in us is always to be strong. I want to use my strengths for God. I want to use my strengths to advance God's kingdom. 
And sometimes, yes, God in his mercy will allow us to use our strengths for his kingdom. But in the end, there will always be times in your journey with God when God will say, I want to use your weakness. And I'm going to win this through vulnerability. So he takes the Israelites across the Jordan River, and instead of making them stronger, he makes them intentionally weaker. This is how we win in God's army. But this also isn't the only test of obedience out there, because so now they've obeyed, and stepped into the river and gone across, they've obeyed and become weak and vulnerable, they still, I want you to notice, they've done some hard things already, they still haven't brought down a single stronghold. And this will happen in your life too. You'll begin to walk with God and follow God, and he'll start to do stuff in your life, and you still haven't taken down a single stronghold. But it's all part of the journey. And so now he says, now it's time for us to take on Jericho. And of course, this is a famous story, but we're going to learn some more really important truths about obedience here. So let's just pick it up in Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now, I just want to, before we finish the story again, time out. I just want you to notice again that God's ways are not our ways. I mean, if there's one thing that comes through so loud and clear through this whole story, is it not true that God's ways are not our ways? I mean, how many of us, if we would have formed a committee, right? You form a, you form a team strategic planning, goal, goal setting, maybe even a little listening prayer. Let's put together a strategic plan and some strategic goals. How are we going to take the promised land? And I can guarantee you those plans don't involve crossing the river and then circumcising everyone. Or number two, when we get to Jericho, okay, guys, what are we going to do? Let's get our heads together. We've got to take the stronghold down for God. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, okay, God, you should give these guys a download of like some advanced weaponry, like a thousand years ahead of their time and give them like this special catapult and this is how we're going to take Jericho down. And God says, no, 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 guys, guys, I've got a better idea. Here's how we're going to take Jericho down. Okay, every, okay yeah, let's write this down, okay? Uh, first day, what I want you to do is I want you to get up, I want you to march around the city and I want you to go back to bed. Okay, okay, gotcha, okay. Second day. Second day, I want you to get up out of bed, march around the city once and I want you to go back to bed. What? Third day, get up, march around the city, go back to bed. Fourth day, okay, we got it already, God. March around the city, go back to bed. Fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, here's the big one. He's, God's big on seventh days. Here's where we're going to take this city down. I want you to march around seven times. This is your plan to take down Jericho. God's ways are not our ways. I just finished telling you that God wins through weakness, not through strength. God's ways are not our ways. Now let me just pause and let's just meditate on something for just a moment. Here in North American church, we are really good at wanting to advance God's kingdom through man's ways. Isn't it true? So we have lots of meetings and team meetings. We've got more leadership books and leadership conferences in the church than we've ever had before because we just got to learn leadership and there's nothing wrong with leadership. And we've got to have books and we've got to have strategic planning and strategic goals and let's put a team together and let's figure out how we're going to do evangelism and let's figure out how we're going to do this and let's figure out how we're going to do that. And the church in North America, we have more money in a church in North America today than the rest of the church has had in all of church history for 2,000 years by far. And yet, we've got all this money and we've got all this leadership training and we've got leadership conferences and all this team planning. How are we going to do evangelism and, and parachurch organizations and the church, churches are closing their doors faster at an alarming rate than they have for decades. The percentage of born-again believers in our culture is going down. We've got so much awesome human planning. It's amazing. We're just so good. And we've got great leaders and lots of money, and we're losing the battle. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. And you cannot advance God's kingdom by man's strengths. In God's army, we win through prayer and repentance and weakness and vulnerability, not through strategic planning and goals, even though there may be some planning and some goal setting. Those things aren't sinful in and of themselves. So God says, I want you to start marching around the city. Verse 5, And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, 
When you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Here's the obedience lesson we learned from Jericho. We learned that in order for obedience to be effective, you must patiently keep on obeying to the end. We must patiently keep on obeying to the end. Let me ask you a question. If the Israelites would have stopped obeying on day three, how much of the promise would they have gotten? Like if they had obeyed halfway, would they have gotten half the promise? No, they would have got zero percent of the promise. I mean, think about how this works. See, we sometimes have an idea, like the moment I start obeying, I'm going to start seeing results, right? So day one, the Israelites march around the, 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 wall, the city one time and they started to see cracks in the wall, right? No. They marched around the wall once and the wall was just as strong as it was when they, before they marched around it. And they marched around it a second day and there was no cracks in the wall. It was just the same as when they started. So they've already stepped out in faith and obedience twice and no change. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, they keep marching around this wall and at the end of a week of doing this, it's no different. It hasn't even been weakened a little bit. And on the seventh day, they march around six times. If they had gotten tired and finished and just said, that's it, this isn't doing anything because it hadn't done a single thing yet. We've been marching around this thing for a week and we've marched around it six times today and the wall is still just as strong as before. See, we sometimes think that God works like in a, there's a linear relationship. As I obey, his power is breaking things down and then I get encouraged, I obey some more, his power breaks some more things down, so I'm encouraged, I, I step out, I obey again, his power works a little more and I'm encouraged and no, no. Sometimes you have to keep obeying and keep obeying and keep obeying and keep obeying without seeing any results. And if you don't patiently endure to the end, if they would have stopped after going 99% of the way through it, they would still have only gotten 0% of the promise. And the reason is because God is looking for sons and daughters whose hearts are so set on him that they will obey him to the death. Not the kinds of sons and daughters who take a couple of steps of obedience and go, ah, this isn't working. I'm going to try something else. He's looking for sons and daughters who are so hungry and thirsty for him. They say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you if I don't see any results. I'm going to follow you if it kills me. I'm going to follow you to the bitter end. And it's only those who patiently endure in obeying to the very end that receive the promise. Now, I want to start to wrap this up, but there's something I really want to talk about here. And I woke up yesterday morning very early and it was just, it was there. It was, sometimes I just wake up with it. And I knew there was a point, and I was praying about it, and there's a point I wanted to make at the end of this message. And, and the point I want to make here is that I'm not talking about weird stuff here. So you know, what are you talking about now? I'm not talking about weird stuff here. I know that when I speak a message about radical obedience here, some of you will take on a burden. It's sort of like anxiety, but you'll take a burden on yourself and you'll think that every wacky thought that comes into your head, that might be God. So what Chris was saying is, I better obey that thought or God's power isn't going to flow in my life. And so some of you will take this call to radical obedience as a call to just being radically weird. And so a thought will come into your head, I need to go buy that expensive piece of equipment or I need to buy that brand new house. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, God told Joshua and the Israelites to do stuff that didn't make any sense, so that must be him. So I'm going to do crazy stuff, and then the power of God is going to flow in my life. Or you'll, a thought will come into your head, give all the money in your wallet to that stranger over there at the supermarket, or stuff like that, and you'll think that that's what this message is about, that any crazy thought that comes into your head is a chance for you to do something crazy for God and see his power work through you. Okay? So let me just put that to rest right now. The purpose of this message is not to encourage you to become a slave to every random thought that crosses your mind. In fact, I don't want any of you to apply this message to crazy thoughts that come to your mind. So you say, well, what are you talking about? Radical obedience. What I'm talking about is to radically obey any spirit prompting that tells you to do something that's written in here. See, long before we ever get to doing crazy stuff, like giving all the money in our wallets to some stranger, or buying a house that we can't afford, or doing some other crazy thing and calling that faith, before we ever get to the crazy, weird stuff, let's first 
master obeying what's in here. Because there's lots in here that we have left undone. So it says in here, as we looked at last week, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And some of you have had a prompting, I need to confess, I need to get vulnerable. But you have so much fear and shame, maybe just laziness, and you just think, and you have all these excuses. I, I, I just don't have the right people. I just, don't, I just don't have the time. It's just kind of embarrassing. It just doesn't work for me right now. That's why there's no power in your life. That's why there's no power in your life. Jesus said the kind of faith that moves mountains is the kind of faith that says, yes, sir, and then steps into the river. So it says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Whatever your excuses are, if you don't obey, there's no uprooting of strongholds in your life. It also says in here, renew your mind in the Word. Did you know that? I don't have this one on PowerPoint. Let me just jump to Psalm chapter 1. Let me just jump to Psalm chapter 1 for just a moment. This one's free. Blessed is the man. Listen to this, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, did God author this book or not? How many of you think God authored this book? Okay, some of you were smart enough not to raise your hands because you knew it was a trap. If God wrote this book, then everything in here is from God, and everything in here is true. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, his word. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You say, 24-7? Well, no, he's not talking about 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But he is talking about a lot. And some of you have had a prompting in your life. You stay up late every single night, and you're on all kinds of media, and you're watching sports, and you're on Facebook, and you're on all kinds of this stuff, and you're on it hours and hours a night, and you're up till midnight, you're up till one or two in the morning, and then you can't get up early in the morning to spend any time in the Word of God, and you wonder why you're in a wilderness. And you come to church, and you go to cell, and you throw up the odd prayer, and you wonder, why am I not free? Why do I have strongholds in my life? Why do I have no passion for Jesus? Other people have testimonies. I have nothing. And the reason is because you haven't obeyed the prompting of the Spirit. There's no power in your life. Jesus said, you don't need more faith. You just need to obey. It says in here, forgive. But you think that applies to everyone else. Someone t really ticked you off this year. It certainly doesn't apply to them. They took advantage of you, and you have no intention of forgiving them. That's why there's no power in your life. It says in here to turn the other cheek, but you've been fighting tooth and nail for your rights. It says in this book, keep your promises even when it hurts. Tell the truth and make things right when you've wronged someone, but you've been too afraid. If I go back and confess that, I could get in legal trouble. If I go back and confess that, it's going to put me at a disadvantage. If I go back and confess that, it's going to make me look bad and embarrass me. And that's why there's no power in your life. Jesus says, you don't need more faith. You just need to obey. And you don't need to obey every crazy thought that comes into your mind and you think it's God. Before we even get onto the crazy stuff, let's first master what's in here. Fear, shame, and laziness are the three biggest reasons why people don't obey the promptings God's Spirit is giving them. So let me finish with this. Let's go back to Luke chapter 17, verse 6. If you would only obey, if you would only obey God's power, he promises, would flow into your life. Things would get better in your marriage. You would get free of your bondages. Jesus says this, and the Lord Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you, you don't need to be a spiritual giant to get answers to prayer. If you had faith just that small, but it was the kind of faith that just said, I think God's prompted me to do that, I better do it. If you had that kind of faith, his power would, you'd say, I don't even know how to pray. You don't need to know how to pray. If you've got faith that small, he'll teach you everything you know, and he will restore your marriage, and he will change your kids, and he will change your life. 
If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So here's what I want to finish with. I want to give Jesus a chance. I want to give the Holy Spirit of God a chance to remind you of any promptings you may have forgotten about or pushed away in the last little while. I double-dog dare you to take out a pen, a pencil, and write down anything the Spirit brings to your mind. And I'm going to give them a moment. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to quietly reflect for just a moment. It won't take long, 30 seconds or so. And I'm going to give Jesus, because there is a reason. There may be a reason why you're in the wilderness right now, why you're not seeing answers to prayer, and why you're not getting freedom. I want to give him just a few moments to remind you of something you may have forgotten about or ignored in the last week or in the last month that God's saying, if you would just take a step of obedience, my power would begin to flow in your life. Lord Jesus, we desperately need a touch from you. We desperately need a touch from you. Would you remind us, each one of us here, if there is a prompting that we have been ignoring, if there's a prompting we've been disobeying or disregarding, I pray that you would remind us of what that is right now. So we'll just take a moment, write down any thoughts that come into your mind. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us. You're not mad at any of us here today. You're inviting us. You're inviting us into the adventure and joy of a life of obeying you. I pray for those of us who are afraid, who are ashamed. Jesus, I pray that you would give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness that would be bigger than our fear and bigger than our shame and bigger than our laziness and would cause us to take a step into the river this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.